Good morning, happy Easter, and welcome back to the show. Today, I have for you a conversation with a personal friend of mine, Derek Radney. Derek is a Presbyterian pastor in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which happens to be where we went to university together and met each other many, many years ago. Uh, On today's podcast, we talk about his faith, and we talk a lot about FOMO and the, the fear of missing out and how that sort of dominates our culture today. Um, I'm not super happy with the vocal quality that I have for this podcast. I'm learning how to leave out the ahs and ums, the little verbal tics of conversation, which aren't as pleasant to listen to in an audio medium as they are uh, as in, in real life. You might not notice them more. I think I do them less actually in in real life i'm still learning as i go along so just stick around and things are going to get better and better uh i I notice it maybe you won't but but i do apologize for them Um, but without any further ado here is my conversation with derek radney welcome to my podcast (laughs) today's guest is derek radney um derek i'm very happy to have you with me and uh i hope for my audience, maybe we could start with um, some background about you and our relationship together. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me, uh, Jacob. Um, I am Derek Radney, and I'm a a pastor, uh, a Presbyterian pastor in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Uh, I am from Texas, uh, though I grew up in in, uh, San Diego for a good portion of my childhood. But I came to Winston-Salem to go to college at Wake Forest University, where I studied philosophy. And then I left to go to graduate school uh, to study and get a Master of Divinity. I did that uh, in a suburb of Chicago. And uh, then I came back to Winston-Salem to become a pastor. And I've been pastoring here for about 10 years, maybe 11 years, with a one-year hiatus uh, when I jumped back into school and went to Duke Divinity for another year to get another master's degree. So, um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a pastor. Uh, I have a family, a wife and uh, three kids. And, uh, I met you, uh, at Wake Forest. I don't even remember what year we met, but I remember us, um, talking about the big questions, uh, of life regularly, uh, when we encountered each other, uh, philosophy, uh, Ayn Rand, libertarianism, atheism, Christianity. Uh, and I think we've just touched base, man, every couple of years since then, uh, just catching up on life and hearing what each of us is going through and continuing to wrestle with those big questions. So, I mean, as you can see, I like wrestling with those big questions is still like a hobby of mine. Um, yeah. But in, in hearing that like list of topics from you, it's, uh, actually, um, it's kind of a portal back into the past. Like Ayn Rand has not been, Quite, quite as important to me over the last, um, oh, 10, 10 years or so. Uh, right. But I, I remember you, our conversations very fondly because, um, I, I grew up in a religious tradition that was very unsatisfying to me, Jehovah's witnesses. And, um, I was mystified that anybody could like be smart and a Christian. Um, mm. and, uh, it was you and Matt. I, I probably met you through Matt because you were yeah. a, a friend of his. Um, but uh, 
you and Matt like took my questions and, um, and, uh, were very honest with me about like your degree of belief and faith and like how that, uh, the things that you could be sure of or thought you could convince me of and things you couldn't, um, like, uh, and it left a good impression on me. It probably brought down, like I, I had a certain boiling hatred for Christianity, maybe when I was 18, 19 or so, mm-hmm. um, after I left my parents' faith. And, um, I think you guys, uh, really took that, that, that hatred down a notch or three or five <laughs> and, uh, and has kind of like set the tone for my exp- exploration of the Christian religious tradition over the next, um, 15 years now. Yeah. Well, I'm glad, uh, that, I had that effect uh, because I'm sure not everyone who's ever known me would feel that way, but it's good to know that uh, it it left a positive impression at least, or one that was less negative than previously. I, I also wrestled with this idea of, can you be a smart person or intelligent person or a thoughtful person and be a Christian? So that's been a, I mean, that's been a big struggle that I had, especially going to college, kind of having grown up in the church and then facing a lot of really good questions in college that I wasn't so sure there were good answers for. And uh, that's partly because of the religious tradition I came up in. But I, I was fortunate to find there are really good answers. There's There's been people thinking very deeply about this stuff for a long time. So, you know, I think we both shared that question. We just maybe have different backgrounds and have been able to come out in the different places, at least for now. Did you have like a particular spiritual mentor or book that like kind of um, helped you struggle with that question of like with all the, with all the really good questions that you were getting? Yeah. I mean, I was a philosophy major. And so, you know, at first it seemed like philosophy was a a friend and was like, Oh, look, some of these philosophers have given these rational proofs of God's existence. Awesome. You know, this justifies my belief. And then it wasn't long before, you know, I found there were a lot of holes in that. And so I kind of came to a, uh, an existential crisis and was like, well, I either have to be a thoughtful, rational person or I have to throw out my mind and I can remain a, a Christian. Um, and fortunately, um, a gal I was dating at, um, one year, her mother gave me a book from who I now know to be a, a very thoughtful and well-respected Christian theologian named Francis Schaeffer, um, who was really big in the sixties and seventies. And there's, he had a mixed um, career in terms of the things he did and things he was focused on. But a big part of what he did was he wrote to people wrestling with these big questions. And he had a community in Switzerland um, called Labrie that was just a house and he would just shelter people and then just, he had a library and they would, they would work together and they would read and study and then they would gather and eat together and then they would talk big questions. And he just was this place in, in the sixties and seventies when people were traveling all over Europe and backpack, backpacking and all that, he would just be the shelter for folks. And his writing um, really influenced me, uh, particularly uh, three books that he wrote. Um, one is called, he is there and he is not silent speaking about God, um, which is that, that there is a God that exists and he has spoken. And that is a very critical um, argument basically for the idea of revelation um, as a valid source of knowledge. And then he wrote another book called Escape from Reason, which is not to deny rationality, but uh, a sort of uh, totalitarian view of reason um, he was he was arguing against. And then another one, uh, let's see, 
the God who, uh, I'm sorry, the God who was there and then he is there and he is not silent and escape for reason. Those three books were really influential and in kind of getting me started in answering some big questions. So uh, like a, a skeptical person, if I was going to put on like my, my super skeptical hat. Um, sure. Go for it. Yeah. Oh gosh. This is a little, this is a little harsh, Derek. Are you ready? Um, I hope so. I'm sure I'll be okay. I mean, so um, couldn't one or or I'm, I just want to ask you, like, like, were you biased as you entered this investigation? Like, didn't you have like some answer that you really wanted to be able to reach uh, at the beginning? And yeah, do you think that influence that do you think that influenced oh, sure. your uh, your exploration? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're all we're all biased. We all um, are prone to to believe the things that confirm what we already believe, right? I mean, that's well-documented psychological phenomenon. So uh, I am not in any way suggesting that I was this sort of uh, objective observer who was able to look at all the facts and sort of come up with the rational answer. Um, but I think that is that view of rationality is really flawed, that anyone can be that objective observer. And I think most people today... Uh, most thoughtful philosophers and all that today would would acknowledge that's not the way we we reason, um, and so uh, we all have these sort of basic assumptions that we have to start with that can't be proven. Um, that we have to we have to assume them and operate from them in order to gain some understanding of the world. And um, so I definitely believe I have biases. I have things I, I want to be true. Uh, I think you can be critical of those. But I don't think I'm unique in having a starting point that's sort of unprovable, right? So, like, we have to assume memory works, uh, you know, if we're going to be able to have any sort of discussion about these sorts of questions. You can't really prove that. Um, you can't. You can't uh, prove the uniformity of nature that that the world has always operated according to these same principles, and that will it will continue to operate on those principles. Um, you you have to assume that in order to reason. So. Anyway, yeah, I do. I do think I'm biased, and I have been biased, and I continue to be biased. But I think you can be critical about that, and um, and then go from there. So. Yeah, as I approach the question of of um, like metaphysical questions and and theological questions, like um, the existence of God, I, I'm just kind of feeling into my own biases. Um, there's something really nice about uh, believing that there like there is a god and a purpose for the universe uh, and there's also something really nice about believing there is no god and no purpose for the universe uh um like like there there is there's really mm -hmm. yeah. kind of benefits to both sides um like if there is a god in the in a purpose to the universe then sort of this uh the struggle that i've been undertaking to uh find the good life and find like my place in reality, like can have an end. Um, like I can find a place where I fit in. Um, and um, like existential questions are maybe answerable. Uh, whereas if they're, but it also kind of constrains, it would constrain me. Like if there was a God that had some opinion about how I ought to live, um, it would, it seems like that would take away a lot of my freedom. Uh, and if there is no God, I get that freedom, but then I'm sort of, uh, I mean, existential angst can, can be, uh, terrorizing at some times. Like it, it can reach a fever pitch. Like when, when I'm suffering, um, 
and looking for something to hold on to, like the, the existential crisis is, is a part of that. Like it comes back and, um, and that can be like nigh unbearable. So that's my bias. Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of wishy-washy, I guess, like as far as like what I want yeah. to even believe. Sure. Well, and I, I mean, I think also our experiences shape us a lot too. So, I mean, I grew up in a family that was really loving and um, nurturing and encouraging. I mean, I would say I had a really uh, great family that I grew up in and uh, they were, they were, my mom and dad are Christians. And so I don't have um, this, this sort of baggage that, um, you know, inherently has led me to distrust um, these concepts and this idea of God and uh, you know, communities that believe in God, like that's not something that's sort of in my background. And I think people who grow up in, in churches or spiritual communities that are abusive or, um, just uh, hurtful in a, in a whole number of ways, whatever that might look like, um, th- there is going to be some sort of, I think, inherent resistance to these ideas that, uh, that to Christianity, just because, you've, you've experienced some pain with that. And we don't want to eat, we don't want to get back into a situation where that can happen again, you know? So there's a sort of trauma response that is there. Um, now on the other side, you could say a person who grows up in a Christian home and it's a good experience, you know, they don't want to face the, the, the fact that maybe everything they grew up believing and their family believes is a lie. And so there's a bias against sort of hard questions. So I, I think that's definitely there too. Um, so yeah, I mean, I just think all we're very complex creatures, and I and I very much believe that this idea of objective rationality is just a is not true to what humans are like. Uh, it's not possible. We're very complex. Uh, that doesn't mean we can't have confidence uh, over time as we grow to learn things. Uh, I think you can. I just the idea of certainty, uh, I think, is a, is a, a myth of the Enlightenment. Do you have certainty in your belief in God? Um, pr- probably not in the way people want you know, typically use that word. Uh, I mean, it's, I, t- I talk about it as like the sort of certainty I have that my wife loves me, you know, is the sort of certainty I have that God is real and that Christ died, uh, and rose again. Um, and that Jesus is the son of God. Like I'm certain of those in this, in the same way that I'm certain that my wife loves me. Now, could my wife, um, be completely fooling me? and actually engaged in, a, in an illicit affair. Yeah, that's possible. I mean, I, I'm very skeptical that's going on. Um, there's been a long track record of faithfulness uh, and transparency and consistency in what, you know, I'm seeing in her matching up with reality. You know, all this, all these things that lead me to believe very, very much that she loves me. And uh, I think it's the same with God. We can have greater and greater confidence we can have a type of certainty, the sort of certainty you can have in relationships, but not the sort of certainty you can have with like an objective proof of, you know, two plus two equals four, you know, I mean, things that are true based on the very inherent meaning of their, uh, of the symbols, you know, those sort of equations. I don't think you can have that sort of certainty about God. That is, um, yeah, that is one of the, uh, I think the things that I enjoyed about um, my early conversations with you and Matt um, it was, um, my, the reason why I thought that intellect and faith were incompatible is because to have certainty 
in God where, I mean, that's a, it's a pretty exotic proposition. I mean, it's, it's God is not obvious and the Christian God, especially is not obviously a part of reality. Um, that, uh, like he doesn't make my bre- sit down with me at breakfast or, or anything like that. Um, like there is that, um, it seems that if people were certain of this, then they must have killed some part of their brain. Um, and, 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 and the way that you're talking about it is, right. um, do- doesn't seem to require that it's more, uh, it, it's, it's not in the same way that, like you said, that two plus two equals four. It's more of like some, yeah. I, I'm guessing you've built some faith over interacting with reality over the years and seeing that this set of beliefs is, is seems good to you or, or, or consistent with your experience. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's, that's right. And I would say, uh, the, the Bible, you know, is a particularly important part of the Christian faith. Um, we believe it's the word of God that God's actually spoken to us and we can know who he is through what he said there. And particularly that the Bible focuses on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Um, and Jesus himself is the highest revelation of who God is. Um, but, you know, we don't just read the Bible. The Bible also sort of reads us in a way. Uh, it, it, it sort of reveals who we are. And uh, out of all the reading I've done as a philosophy major, looking at other religions, and you know, as I've gotten out of school and I've become a pastor and I've tried to dive into things, you know, other disciplines, sociology, psychology, things like that, there is nothing that is so penetrating um, and has so much insight into humans as the Bible. Um, and, I, and I think there's a lot of people who, um, who aren't Christians who would acknowledge that. They see a real depth of insight into human nature. Um, and uh, the human condition and suffering and hope and re- community and relationships. I mean, there's so much that the Bible just speaks uh, so penetratingly about that um, it's part of the, it's part of what just adds to this confidence, you know, that I have not certainty, but uh, if it's not true, I really don't know where else I would go to have a better understanding of myself, uh, let alone the, the whole world. Um. I'd like to speak to uh, or, or run by you. Um, like, th- there's a couple of things in my life that have uh, given me a, a warmer picture of Christianity lately, um, and maybe, maybe past three years, maybe past one year, um, uh, maybe three things. Um, one is uh, uh, psychedelics, because. Um, it like engages like the pattern matching uh, sort of part of the brain and you see more meaning in, in everything. And most of that effect goes away when someone's no longer taking them. But uh, some of that effect I think stays on where you become like a person that sees more meaning in in everyday things, like discovering more synchronicities. Um, And so like the, like the worldview that, that God is behind everything, like, like it sort of is, it doesn't prove it, but it's sort of consistent. Like this, either like a pantheism or a theism um, sort of seems consistent with the psychedelic experience. Um, secondly is, is like uh, there's a verse in the Bible in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, you will know a tree by the fruit it bears. Um, and I think that's a really good way to go about selecting uh, your stances on metaphysical questions. Like, and it seems to me, uh, especially with um as I've gotten older and dealt with more difficult questions and more suffering in my life, that the being around Christians or being around the church 
seems to have <clears throat> like a positive effect on me as I go through uh, experiences of deeper suffering than, than I've heretofore had to, had to undergo. Like it, it makes me, it opens me up to other people. Um, it gives me, I listen to stories that suffering can have meaning and purpose. Um, like Jesus suffering was redemptive. Like he had to suffer for the, he kind of took the suffering of all mankind onto himself, according to Christian doctrine, as I understand it. Um, but that also is challenging because I recently read the sermon on the Mount and man, that is a, and I'm looking at this. I'm like, if I lived by this, like, would I like that? Is that good fruit? And it's really just challenging, weird countercultural stuff. Like it's, uh, like it, it kind of is a smack in the face. Um, like it's, it seems almost impossible to, yeah. to live up to the Sermon on the Mount. Yeah. Um, so, so I'm not, sh- not completely sure on, on that side, how much I like it, but. So, so I would say, um, you, you kind of said that being around Christians and what sort of it calls you into is something that you see is, is good. I mean, you, you resonate with what it's calling you into. Right. Um, and I would say, a lot of people say, well, look, I've, I've been around Christians and that's not the impact they had on me. They, it was sort of repulsive. And I think that's, that's important to speak to because Christians are not perfect, right? Where uh, the built into Christian doctrine is the idea that even the church, even Christians fail to live up to what God is calling us to live into. Uh, and so whenever we have bad experiences with religion or with Christianity in particular, we need to say, all right, is this built into the system and their, their doctrine and who they say we're supposed to be, or is this a failure of the Christians themselves to be true to what they're called to live into? Um, and you just said, I could never live into the sermon on the Mount. And that's exactly right. Like no, we don't believe Christians can ever live faithfully up to those standards. I mean, it's, uh, that's the whole point of why Christ had to die and rise again. Um, but the picture that it's painting is a beautiful way of life that uh, we believe God is at work through his spirit to help us grow into that. Uh, so, it, I mean, it, I think those are just important things to bring out when we start looking at the church and whether or not it has a positive impact and what we're being called to live like and all that. Well, I, I think that the idea that there's one church is flawed. Like there's not one Christianity. There's not one Buddhism. Like each church will have its own people its own flaws, its own, uh, strengths. Um, like I like, I like some aspects of Hinduism. I, I sometimes go to uh, kirtans, which is a sort of Hindu, uh, chanting, um, group chanting sort of musical kind of ritual. And, uh, but I know like there are like Hindu ashrams that are completely abusive and like, uh, like take tyrannical power over the people that attend um, and so like every re- religious tradition to me is, uh, like the, the, the material that's shared in, in that tradition, like the Bible or, um, Christian theology like that, that gives a starting point for each church, but, but it, each church departs from there, um, according to the biases of the people running it. Yeah, definitely. So some of them can be good. Like there's bad Christianity out there, man. And they believe the same Bible you do. Well, that's true. I mean, I've been, I am at times bad Christianity. <laughs> I mean, that's there's probably bad pres- Presbyterians out there. Oh, definitely. Yeah. I mean, the, I guess what I'm saying is I am one of those bad Christians. And that's only because I'm failing to live into what Christianity is about 
faithfully, right? So um, we we believe Christians are flawed, and so that is we have to expect the church to fail to live faithfully, but that doesn't undercut the legitimacy of what God is painting as a as the way of life for us. You know, it doesn't undercut the truthfulness of what scripture teaches about how we're to live, for instance. Um, so, yeah. The, the loving your enemies as yourself thing, that was, that, that's kind of a hard thing. That was one of the hard things in the Sermon on the Mount. Absolutely. Yeah. There's no way you can obey that unless you believe that Jesus died and rose again. Um, there, nobody can live that way because we have to uh, deal with our enemies and, and overcome them if we don't have hope that finally God will overcome injustice and everything will be set right uh, and that we'll be forgiven and that uh, God's justice will prevail. So, I mean, you, you just, there's no reason to live that way unless Christ rose from the dead. Um, I have the topic of FOMO written down. I really want to talk about FOMO. Like I know we, we, we kind of, I kind of dived into uh, uh, I guess more theological questions because it was there and we started off talking about how we met each other yeah. and, and that's how we, that's how we met each other. Yeah. Um, but um, I'd like to just explore a little bit more of a personal, personal topics and see how that goes. Sure. Yeah. So fear of missing out, you want me to, Give my my two cents on fear of missing out. Uh, maybe like FOMO has been a, a major a major part of my life. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's especially challenging for people in urban areas, like young adults in urban areas. Um, although I think with the internet, maybe it is becoming a larger part of our culture. Um, this idea that there are lots of amazing experiences out there, and I need to go collect them all. Um, that has been, um, like, I, I don't think it's a problem to be somewhat adventurous and to go and explore new experiences, uh, and to get somewhat of a broad view of life and, and see what kinds of ways other people live. I think there, there are genuine, um, there are genuine positive aspects of going and collecting some new experiences, but I think I discovered uh, or I kind of woke up to the fact maybe a year or two ago that I feel like my life has been driven almost completely by that or too much by that. Like, I think I've gone too far um, in, in that direction. And I, I've sort of accumulated so many new experiences um, that I think they started to feel a little bit empty to me. And, and I think that my FOMO is so strong that I have a little bit of a meta FOMO and I'm worried that by living a FOMO driven life, I'm missing out on like maybe more meaningful and deeper aspects of experience. Um, yeah. That's kind of where I am on FOMO. Yeah. I, I, and I don't think you're alone. I think that's like, well, you said that, I mean, it's like an epidemic of our time. Um, I think that the, um, the basic philosophy of America is, is what some people have termed expressive individualism um, or the sovereignty of the self, which, you know, the purpose, there is no overarching purpose to life. The only purpose there is for life is what you create for yourself. You're, the only identity you have is the one you choose for yourself. And your life is basically supposed to be about pursuing 
your identity, your happiness, your meaning, uh, and it shouldn't be imposed on you from the outside. So I think what that produces in people is um, we constantly have to be figuring out what we want our lives to be about. And so we've got to fill our lives with experiences. And because we don't really know what's out there, there is always this sense of maybe there's more that I could be doing that would be more fulfilling, more satisfying, more happy. Um, or, I mean, on another level completely, uh, just in uh, on a basic week-to-week basis, we get invited to be a part of different things. We don't want to commit to any of them because we want to be able at the last moment to jump into the thing that's going to be maybe the best option at the time, right? Uh, and we feel like if we commit you know, on, on Monday to something, then Thursday, something better comes along and now we can't go to the better thing, you know? And so there's, it drives us on a week to week basis too. And then in relationships, we can be with a great person, but everybody's got uh, flaws and and not every uh, two people just have perfect, amazing chemistry. And so there's always a sense of, is there someone better out there for me and all this? And so we're just constantly shunning commitments. Uh, we're, we're, we don't want to sort of be nailed down. Uh, we want to be free to always jump to what presents itself as an opportunity. And I think the result of that is we actually end up missing out on the the meta thing that you're talking about. The deeper um, relationships, uh, intimacy, love, connection, um, the, I mean, just the the good things we can do if we settle into one place for a long time and are faithful to labor in one one direction. Uh, I mean, there's all sorts of goods that can be experienced when we don't live for like the most immediate, like what's going to give me the best thrill here? Or is there something better um, that, that I've always got to be waiting for? Um, so I, I think you're describing a very common way of going about life. And as a pastor, I talk to people all the time who are trying to make decisions and they're wrestling with what you're describing. And my counsel is, is more often than not that the best things in life come um, when we make deep commitments to communities, to people, and we often do very hard things uh, because of those commitments, and we miss out on many things, but there's this sort of bigger picture joy and happiness and fulfillment that comes because we miss out on those those smaller things. Um, and as a Christian, there's a whole other level to that. I mean, as a Christian, we believe that everything we're doing has sort of eternal implications. And so we might, we might suffer greatly in some ways um, and make sacrifices and miss out on, you know, simple joys, but there's like a greater joy even still in the future. So that's a, that's a whole nother level. But even if you just reject that part, <laughs> I think on a purely relational level, for instance, there's just much deeper and greater joys that come from committing to one person, for instance, and, uh, and learning to be faithful to them. Yeah, I, I certainly... I struggle with this in that, like, I find it sort of hard to get off the treadmill of, of FOMO. Yeah. Um, like I'm just, I've designed my life around having lots of experiences and, and my peer groups are chosen based on the novel experiences that we've enjoyed together. Um, and I suppose eventually some people find a certain set of experiences that they like enough and they can sort of dedicate themselves to that and specialize. But I, I have a very, I have a personality that loves novelty. So like uh, it's, it's harder for me to like choose a path and go down that. Like I, I always think about the, the other paths. Um, and uh, like in relationship, that was, I think uh, a lesson that I had to learn, but very devastating uh, to me. Um, I, uh, 
recently lost a, a long-term relationship. Uh, and I think that was largely that the loss of it was largely driven by, by FOMO. Um, it was, I spent two, um, this was a, a person that, that I decided I, I wanted to marry, but, uh, it was sort of after the window of opportunity had closed because I had waffled on it, uh, for so long that, um, that created a problem in our relationship, uh, that grew and, and blew it up. Uh, like I was always, I wondered, I was thinking for, for years, like, is there someone better out there for me? Um, while I had a very, you know, a very loving, close relationship, um, with a person. And, um, so I think that experience is like partly there, there's two reasons why I'm, I'm obsessed with FOMO right now. One is that experience was, uh, the most painful experience of my life so far. And, and it's really like opened up the window of suffering to me. Like I, I, I feel like I understand suffering on a whole new level now and, um, that, that I didn't have access to before. And, and that's a terrible thing to happen, but also a useful thing to happen maybe. Um, and then, and then secondly, uh, like I, I feel a little, dis I'm, I feel a little dissatisfied and, uh, stressed out by sort of the yeah. kinetic activity of my life right now. Yeah. I think you're, you're describing exactly the sort of downsides of living for not missing out on stuff and always have wanting new experiences. I mean, it makes you a very interesting person, you know, cause you've experienced so many things and you've done a variety of things. And I, I think that's really appealing. Um, but it can, it can undercut experiencing long-term relationships, a connection. I mean, there are things that come out of living in a certain place for a long time and being invested in that community that you will never experience if you're always jumping from one thing to the next, you know, and, and it's hard to describe. Um, I, I actually think one of the reasons why people are so mobile today and why they're always jumping around is because, because of the mobility of culture, uh, technologically, um, people have lost a sense of connection to place. And so now they don't even realize like what it does for us emotionally, psychologically, in terms of relationships to be rooted in one place. And to, to sort of be engaged in some of the mundane things that come with being in the same place all the time. Um, but there's, there's really deep joys that come out of that. That's just hard to, I think it's hard to explain. What made you choose to settle down in Winston-Salem? Well, part of it's opportunity. Part of it was I had a, had a connection by, because we went to Wake Forest. Um, and, uh, I think part of it was, I, I felt like what I am able to do, I could do well here because I, I knew um, the city decently well for my time in college. Uh, and so I felt like this would be a good place to invest my life, uh, and to labor and to do good while, you know, for, for the community. Um, you know, looking back, I, I really, my family's all in Texas and I didn't really consider at the time what it would be like to be rooted here and to have them there and to not be around my brothers as we started raising families and not be around my parents. And so there's, there's things I didn't consider back when I was 25 that I wish I had thought about. Um, I love Winston and I'm not in any way regretting that I'm here, but I think there I'm, I'm coming to a place now where I see there's a lot of value in sort of being connected to a place, even generationally. Um, but, uh, that doesn't seem to be what my life's going to be like, which is okay. But I think I'd like to try to raise my kids more in that direction, um, to see our, ourselves having a real connection to this place. And, and laboring generationally for the good of this place. Does it ever bother you to think, I mean, 
do you think your your life are you sure your life wouldn't have been better had you um you know moved around a lot more traveled the world more seen more things done more things i see i don't worry about that um i think that that way of living in general is not going to be helpful to anybody um i think that part of what um being a christian entails is receiving what we have as a gift and to see uh, our lives as they are as a calling from god so uh sort of like an an assignment you know we're <coughs> excuse me like god think of god as like this king and he he commissions you to go and to do this task and so you have this deep purpose in what you're doing in the place where you are uh and it's a gift that you get to participate in this great kingdom that he's doing you know this this remaking of all things making all things beautiful bringing peace and harmony and um you know i could say well why don't i get that calling over there or if i had been called to this over here wouldn't it have been more exciting well i mean uh it's not really you know it's a privilege to have the calling i have i guess you know and that and you know who knows how how could i possibly know what would be happier over there i don't know yeah uh, one thing i think of a little bit with respect to this is that um, Jordan Peterson says uh, that like satisfaction in life comes not from rights, but from responsibility. And um, I think part of the reason why I feel a little frivolous right now is like, nobody's really counting on me. And um, like I had when I was going through um, trying to figure out my, my, uh, my relationship that ended, I, I realized that I had been the most important thing in my life for 35 years. And, um, and I, and I sort of feel ready to step out of center stage and let something else be the most important thing in my life. Yeah. And, uh, like it, it, fe- it feels, it feels appropriate to be the most important thing in my life when I'm 18. Um, it feels a little inappropriate to be the most important thing in my life when I'm 35. Um, and, yeah, I think uh, I'm looking towards responsibility as maybe the the thing that will solve this uh, malaise that I'm currently going through. Um, I don't know if it's yeah. I, I mean, you're right. This you're right. This is keep going. Sorry, I got you. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if that's true or not, but that's my current best guess. Well, I. I'm just saying your intuitions are right that at 35, you should be, you know, you're saying, I don't want my life to be about myself. I want it to be about something more than me. And I think at the difference is just that at 18, you could believe that everything could be about you. And at 35, you kind of have gained a broader perspective of the world. But I think you're just coming into touch with what's true of all, all people is we're not made to just live for ourselves. Um, and our, everything about the narrative in America is that freedom of the individual is ultimate, right? And and what that means is I have no constraints. I determine my own destiny, my own meaning, my own purpose. And that that's a type of freedom that, you know, provides for a lot of interesting things, but it leads to this paralysis and this anxiety eventually because there's no sense of what it's all for. And it's just this endless striving to kind of create meaning. And it's eventually empty, which is I think what you're describing. And, uh, and so, we get this sense that we're made for some purpose greater than ourselves. And so I would say, yeah, that's that intuition is correct. But I think you need to go a step further and realize that that's not, um, 
that intuition only makes sense if something like Christianity is true, right? Because you actually were going with your instincts and intuitions before that were correct if there is nothing except matter, right? Like if, if materialism is correct and all we are is stuff, then there isn't any overarching purpose. And you are right to think you are the center of your world. Um, but I, I would say, no, that's not correct. You, you, you intuit now what is actually true, which is you're made for something more. There's a purpose for your life that you need to live into. Is that making any sense? That makes sense. Am I getting a little preachy here? You can get preachy. You're a preacher, aren't you? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, you're, allowed, you're allowed to preach. I guess so. Uh, don't, don't hold back. I want the authentic Derek Radney experience. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and, and that's one of the things that, that I like about you is um, like, you're very honest about how your faith in, in informs your views and, and, and uh, you're, you, you sort of, um, you sort of own your faith and are unashamed about it, but without trying to also force it on other people. Uh, it's like, you're not hiding it and you're not forcing it on me. It's sort of like this nice, middle ground that I think you walk well. Um, Thanks. And and I I think that's a a good model for, I I wish, and I've met other people that uh, have a religious calling that also have a, have walked that line. And those are the people that I I keep wanting to come back to because they can hear me, but they're also not hiding themselves. And that is, that's important. Um, But as far as this, um, this this desire that I have for for meaning or for more responsibility for living for something other than myself um, being only appropriate if something like Christianity is true, um, I, I think that's one way that that it could come about. And, and another way, I, I mean, I guess evolution could could explain uh, some of this. Like, uh, like maybe maybe evolution maybe we have like some emotional needs that are evolved to um be important in the tribe or to have children i think i think there is a biological drive to have children that uh that is stronger than most people realize um i think silicon valley might be uh just sort of built on people's sublimated desires to have children that they uh that they don't realize like like i think (laughs) I, i think this um yeah this like need to like make a dent on the universe and like to to leave something behind is sort of might come from that biological drive. Um, yes, yes. And since people aren't marrying or having kids, then uh, then they go and build companies and hope that'll fill it. Um, and probably, so probably doesn't. I, I hear what you're saying. I think you're right that we could explain the desire to do something bigger than ourselves from evolution, for instance, or or maybe any a number of things. What I what I mean to say though is. That can only be actually accurate that your life is, in fact, for something more if something like Christianity is true. So, you know, you had intuitions at 18 and you have intuitions now. And the question is, which one of those intuitions is justified and which one of those is not justified? And I'm saying at 18, those intuitions were not justified. You you sort of thought the world was built around you, right? As as many of us do. Uh, and that my, your life is is really just for you to create its own meaning and purpose. But at 35, you have different intuitions. And I'm saying that's because you're coming into greater contact with, with reality, that there actually is a meaning for your life. So, uh, because I think you could, you could go 
through the whole span of it and say, well, it's all just evolution, right? And 18, you know, I've got these intuitions and there's evolutionary reasons for that. And at 35, I've got intuitions and there's evolutionary reasons for that. But you don't get to uh, any truth by, by sort of explaining it away that way. Mm-hmm. Am I, is that, are you following me? Uh, yeah. Like there's some way that you're saying that my desire to live for something larger than myself is um, like, if we're looking at it from a scientific materialist spe- uh, uh, perspective and, and taking uh, evolution as maybe the driving force, forth both behind my earlier desire to explore and my current desire to be part of something larger than myself, um, then uh, there, there's not like a, a truth value to either of those things. Like they're, they just both happen to be what like the chemicals in my brain are making me do. Like maybe I had higher testosterone when I was 18 and that was put me in a more exploratory phase or I don't, I don't understand the human body that well. There's right, lots right. of mechanisms there. Um, and uh, but if something like Christianity is true, then, then my latter intuition at least can be actually true in some larger um, philosophical way um, and, and not just something that I happen to be experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. I think you said that better than I did. That's right. I guess the question is like, do I need, do I, do I need to believe that my intuitions are true in some way or is it like, okay, that they just happen to be what's happening? Yeah. Um, I guess I can, I can, I can, uh, I can predict one of your responses to that, which would be, well, my earlier intuition I feel is no longer serving me. So, um, like just going by what I happen to be feeling is not a reliable guide because I'm currently rejecting what I used to be feeling. Yeah. I think that if you were to take what you're feeling now as just maybe another iteration of evolutionary development of human species or, or some other social explanation, then when you start seeking to live for something more than yourself and it gets hard, it'll be much easier to just say, all right, well, that was, that was a fun phase, you know, and now I'm going to move on to approaching life differently. Um, But if you understand living for something more than yourself as actually the calling on your life from a God who made you for that purpose, then when it gets hard and you actually have to suffer for that, you can, you can persevere and uh, you can stick with that purpose at great cost to yourself. Does that make sense? Hmm. Let me try that on for a second. Yeah, I think there's some way that transcendent belief um, enables people to um, to adhere to more strongly adhere to a path um, to be able to go through more suffering to uh, stay on a path. Um, like if you believe there's, there's some purpose outside of uh, the mundane that in some source of purpose that um, can't be shaken, um, then the world can try to shake it all, all at once. Um, but if it just ha- happens to be something that you chose, then you can choose other things. Yeah, that's right. I think I get that. I, I listened to the, the Tim Keller lectures you sent me. So I, I sort of, this, this is similar to some of the stuff he was saying. Yeah. Yeah. 
which I really recommend people do that. If they've never heard of Tim Keller, uh, I think he's probably the best person I know of at, at explaining what Christianity really is about to people who live in, uh, you know, this, what, what you might call the secular age that we live in, or sort of a increasingly post-Christian age, um, or however you want to put it. We, he speaks to people who live right now and are wrestling with, you know, things you're talking about who, um, who just can't imagine that smart people could be Christians, uh, who think science has disproved Christianity, um, who think that Christianity has been really bad for the world and oppressive. Um, I think he's really good at, at, he knows those questions. He understands those. And he's really good at sort of explaining the Christian faith and that uh, amidst those questions. So he's been helpful to me as a Christian. And I know a number of people who, um, would describe themselves as more sort of a, per, a scientific person or a rational person who only believes things based on evidence um, and has, has read his writings or listened to his lectures and begun to kind of see things a little differently. So, yeah, I'm, I'm probably, probably just sound like him. If, if I'm doing well, I'm sounding like him. <laughs> I, I can put a link to uh, the lecture series that, that you sent to me um, on the show notes, um, great is questioning Christianity 2015. Those audio files are available online. Um, and there was, there is some things in there that I hadn't heard before from mm -hmm. quite that perspective. So it was uh, pretty interesting to me. Yeah. Um, I suppose what I'm doing by having you on the podcast is like the, the, the theme of this podcast, if it's anything is something like, like how should we live? Um, and especially how should we live now when, like now seems different yeah. than, than the past. And, uh, and I guess my purpose is sort of to try to get, yeah. you know, your perspective on it, uh, both as an individual, but also, you know, representing the intellectual tradition that you yeah. bring forth. Yeah. I think that make that's a good way of describing our conversation. There's a philosopher named Charles Taylor who's Canadian. Uh, and he wrote a book called a secular age. And, uh, in my circles, it's gotten a lot of attention because he's sort of trying to explain what it's like to live right now, which is, I mean, that sounds silly, but he's sort of helping name the experience that so many of us are living in right now. And he, he describes it as, um, a secular age, meaning, uh, everybody lives in a world where it's sort of, um, obvious that this is all there is, so to speak. And he said, this is a very different world than 600 years ago, where it was obvious to everyone that we lived in a magical world, a world that was uh, permeable, um, where, where God intervened regularly and was involved in everyday life. And that was just obvious. And so, uh, now we live in a world where that's not obvious to us. That's up for grabs. That's definitely a question, right? And so people of faith like myself are haunted by doubts regularly. There's tough questions that we have to answer that we're not so sure about. And so we believe, and yet we still wrestle with a lot of questions. He said, but we also live in an age where secular people are, are haunted by the transcendent. They, they believe that this is all there is, just matter, just stuff. But there's this sort of constant pressure uh, where sort of like the transcendent seems to sort of break into their experience every once in a while, and they don't know how to explain it. And so even secular people, there's sort of this, this doubt that's sort of in the background. And I would say uh, that really, I think, has been helpful for me as a Christian to, to sort of say, you know, part of being Christian is that I'm going to wrestle with doubts and I have to ask those instead of shoving them down, pretend like they don't exist and telling everyone I'm certain, <laughs> you know, which is what I think a lot of people experience from Christians is these guys who walk around with this sort of, oh yeah, I know hundred percent that, 
God exists and Christ rose from the dead. And they've never really asked tough questions. They, they actually are scared to do that. Um, but I also think secular people can have that sort of faith as well, that they're just totally sure that there's nothing but this world. And, uh, and I, I just am really skeptical that they can be as confident about that as they are. So Tim Keller talks a lot about this cross pressured way of living today. And he's written about uh, this book, the, the lectures that you might link to, um, he's written a book coming out of those called making sense of God, which is for people who like to read instead of listen to lectures that might be better, but how, how should we live now? Yeah. I suppose that I am, uh, a very doubtful person in a person that does not have faith in, uh, either the non-existence or the existence of God. So, I mean, you could describe me as an agnostic, I guess. Um, that label doesn't seem to be quite as, as fun as letting me, or quite as uh, evocative as like letting me give my own definition of it. Um, but which is an un- uncomfortable place to be, but also feels very real to uh, my experience. And um, I suppose the stage that I'm currently at is uh, you've mentioned a few times now that like one of the defining features of our times is that people need to make meaning for themselves. Um, and, and that it can be really fun and it has a lot of freedom. And when you first get a, a rush of that, it's, uh, it's um, yeah, it can be, it can be exciting, but I guess I'm, I'm the person that's kind of uh, like gorged too much on the candy or that's hit, hit some, uh, hit some rock bottom, like, or like I've lost my faith. I, I have found that continuing down that, 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 that path of creating meaning for myself has, has become exhausting and has also produced a lot of suffering. Um, and, and, and I guess I'm, I'm looking for, for a way out. Like, is there some, is there some pattern to the kinds of meetings I try to create for myself that were more satisfying and less satisfying? Like, is there some, uh, are there some principles I can follow to, uh, sort of have a more satisfying life because I'm pretty unsatisfied. And, um, so I'm looking to people like, Jordan Peterson, who seems to speak as a man with having authority, um, and, uh, other, other traditions. Um, I'm also, you know, I I also take some inspiration from Buddhism and, and and I think my eclectic, my eclecticness is also like, um, me holding on to some identity I have as a, as an explorer, but also like I, I will, uh, I'll grab inspiration from wherever I can as to like, like, can you help me? I, I want help to like try to navigate this mess and, and find out like, um, like total freedom and chaos is, uh, well, total freedom can become chaos when, when you have, when you have too much of it. Um, that was a little meandering, but that's kind of like how I'm coming to this conversation. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that fits in to the, the way that Charles Taylor would explain this sort of, um, non-believer and the experience of the non-believer. So I don't think that's totally um, unique to what he was trying to describe. I, I probably didn't really articulate that as thoroughly as I, I could have. But um, I, I think that your desire to be able to draw truth from a lot of different traditions is a, is a good one. Um, and I think Christianity, while it is an exclusive religion in the sense that it, it you know, the claim is that we can only really be uh, saved uh reconciled to God through Christ. Um, 
that Jesus is the the fullest revelation of who God is. I don't think that means that we can't learn anything from other people or from non-Christians or from other religions. Uh, And so uh, I don't think that's inherently in conflict with the Christian faith. Um, I know that wasn't really the main thing you were saying, but I I just want to affirm that in you. I think that's a great thing about you that you, um, you, you like to learn from a lot of different sources and draw really helpful things from them. I think that's a, that's a noble thing. It's one of my least favorite things about um, Christianity actually is like this impression, I guess, sometimes that it is exclusive and, or would get mad at me for, for like bringing in other sources of wisdom. Um, but the better Christians that, or the Christian Christians I run into that, that I like more um, don't have that reaction. Well, I mean, I think what matters is what's truly representative of Christianity. I hope I'm accurately representing the true faith in saying that um, God is a God of truth and he, um, all truth is his truth, you know, wherever it comes from. Um, we believe that the, the message of Jesus Christ is a, is a special revelation that you're only going to get from Christianity. And that's the key to being reconciled to God. Uh, but that doesn't mean you can't find all sorts of other things that are insightful and helpful. And I'm really thankful that tons of people who aren't Christians do really good things for the world. I mean, they they learn amazing things and they use that knowledge to build good things and to do good things. And that's something that Christians are, are grateful for. Um, so, yeah, there, there's definitely a stream of Christianity that sort of, you know, is negative towards anything not Christian. Uh, and that's, that's, I think, a distortion of the Christian faith. Yeah, and that's the kind of Christianity I grew up with. So uh, that's probably something that I'm hyper aware of or more aware of than other people. Yeah, yeah. You, going back just a minute ago, you mentioned that um, uh, coming back to freedom and sort of creating your own purpose um, and saying that that's really exciting, but it sort of leaves you empty at some point. Um, I think another way of coming at this discussion, something we haven't really touched on at all is when we put ourselves at the center of the universe and we live life to create our own meaning and purpose, you know, that doesn't put us in a position to really serve other people well. Uh, And, you know, one thing we, it's hard to talk about at times, but I think when we live that way, we end up actually not only suffering ourselves, but actually causing suffering for others. And I think our intuitions, most people who, you know, get a sense that we're not supposed to hurt other people. And so that's a conflict, right? Like I'm not supposed to hurt other people, but I've got to live for myself and, and get the best life I can out of this. And, uh, I think that's just an inherent tension in this sort of, um, expressive individualism, the sovereign self philosophy that most people are living by. Uh, so I don't know. Have you, have you experienced that tension? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do wonder, well, first of all, this idea of living for myself has left me like kind of self-focused and like I've consumed a lot of experiences that are sort of entertaining, like for um, just for my entertainment. And and, and I think those are the things I'm kind of getting to the bottom of Um, like the, the the kinds of experiences I've chosen to have uh, are, I'm ready for a change. Um, The other thing is I, I wonder if, like living for yourself leads people to play more zero sum games. Um, like we're, we're trying to each of us maximize our pleasure. So like there's more ways that 
um, other people can interfere with us and other people could be a, a help to us. Uh, I mean, sometimes, sometimes we do that together, but um, like the overall, the overall uh, guiding principle is a little selfish. So it might predispose us to a little bit more um, distance from, from our fellow man. Um, I mean, the thing I notice is I, I, I just think these, it's compatible to uh, in some subtle way to live for yourself and to live for others in that the, the most satisfying experiences I've had is when I've had a positive impact on other people. And if I really want to like maximize my pleasure as a, as a human being, like there's a way that doing that directly by seeking my own pleasure, isn't the way to do it. Um, doing it more indirectly by seeking the good of others seems to be the way to go. Just need to yeah. go one level up. I think, I think that's true, but I also think there's danger in helping others because it makes us feel good or living to sort of, make others happy because it makes us feel good. Um, what I've found in my own experience is that I actually sometimes end up resenting these people that I'm trying to live to help. Um, maybe they don't receive my help in the way that I feel like they should, or they don't get better. Or I don't make the difference that I'm trying to make. And I can actually end up resenting the people that I'm helping because I'm, I'm actually relating to them to get something from them. It's just this feeling of being a, a benevolent person. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and, and I think that ends up actually undercutting a lot of people who sort of turn away from living from self to being more humanitarian. They end up getting very jaded because they end up not being able to make the, the difference they meant to, or the people don't appreciate it. And um, I, I think to live altruistically in, in, a, in the sense that I think we should live, you actually have to be able to, um, live for the good of others without any sort of um, positive emotional benefit that might come from that in the short run. Like it, it, you literally have to do it out of some higher calling that transcends this life and this experience um, for it to really be lasting. Um, so, I mean, that, that's, that's probably pretty challenging. Yeah. So I'm hearing, I'm hearing that it, it can't be just a moment to based on moment to moment feelings, but it has to be tied to something um, some sort of larger, maybe intellectual commitment, uh, in order to, um, to be more, to, to pre prevent, prevent it from going wrong in, in these ways. I think so. Yeah. I, I suppose for, for a non-Christian, one could say like, I mean, maybe virtue ethics is a better way to, to think about, um, the kind of work you want to do in the world. Uh, like, am I being the kind of person, am I living if I'm being the kind of person I want to be, like, am I living according to like my ideal, um, rather than, uh, rather than it being like another way I can receive, you know, or be happy or find fulfillment, you know, like I used to find fulfillment and sort of just seeking pleasure directly. Now I find fulfillment in helping people. And I would say that's a pretty shallow way of, of trying to help people. I think that's going to be a problem, but I think you're right. If it's more, um, I'm going to live this way because it's the type of person I think that I should be. I think that's going to have a, a greater durability um, as we help people or as we live to help other people. All right. Uh, well, I had like two topics I wanted to talk about. Uh, I'm trying to pick suffering and identity. Identity is like, identity is kind of an interesting one for me. Let's talk about identity. It's, it kind of, it's kind of on theme. Um, yeah. I mean, we've been talking about it already in some ways. Yeah. Like, like who, who am I? 
um, I guess is the, the ultimate question of identity. And so Tim Keller in his lecture series that I just listened to had like this, had a very interesting um, sort of uh, bit on identity, um, which is, uh, I'm trying to think if I want to paraphrase that or not. But um, so he, he talks about how like a, an ancient warrior that like has all these motivations to kill people and do violence, um, like considers that to be very core to his identity. And maybe he even gets a lot of status in the community for doing violence to other tribes or even defending his honor within the tribe. Like you mess with him, you, you might get your head on a stick and you know, that's, that's just who he is. And on the other hand, like if he had like some sexual impulse that like didn't go along with what the tribe expected, um, he would try to quash that as soon as possible. Um, he would not want to be a sexual deviant. Um, where well, he would say that's not who he is. Yeah, that's, that's not his true identity. Yeah, so he has these impulses coming up of violence or sexuality, and like some he's selecting, some he's 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 not pushing away. Um, and then if you take a New York City banker uh, in 2018, um, if he finds himself very prone, he has if he has strong impulses of violence like at work while people are disagreeing with him or something like that. Like let's say he flipped the chair over in a meeting or something, he would go to therapy as soon as possible to try to get rid of those violent impulses. Like that's not who he is. Like that needs to be reformed. Um, but if he had any sort of like sexual impulse at, at all, like that is now, especially in the last 20 years or so, like we consider that like a core part of just who you are. Like you don't push those away unless they're like really problematic. Like those are part of your identity. Um, so I, I thought that was a really interesting point he made and like, um, and I, I guess the well, question, I don't, I don't know where that leaves me, but you, you, do you have any comment on that? Well, well, so yeah. So what he, he's saying there is, um, it, so he talks about identity as something that in our culture today, we see identity as something you create in the past in almost every traditional culture in the world, identity is something that you receive. You're born into it. It's, it's predominantly something that's given to you. You didn't choose it. It's there. And in our day and age today, like I've been saying throughout this conversation, we think we have to create our own identity and we have this idea that we have to throw off all these cultural constraints uh, and create our own identity and that, you know, we've got to define ourselves over and against all these expectations from other people and all the uh, unjust systems around us. And so we're going to live free and, and not be tainted by culture. That's the real authentic way to live. And he's, he's using this illustration to show that that's actually impossible. You can't completely throw off culture. And the point he's making is that even this, this guy, uh, you know, the Viking from like the 800s or whatever, he's controlled by his culture in the grid that he's using to interpret different impulses he has. And in that time, the cultural grid that he's not even really thinking about recognizes you know, attraction sexually to another man as not really him. That's not me. That's not, that's just, you know, I don't know where that's coming from. That's not who I am, but the desire to smash a person's head, that's, that's who I really am. Right. Whereas the banker in the New York city in 2018, he's got a grid, which says, wow, I want to smash people's heads in. That's not me. Uh, but my sexual desire defines me. Right. And so even if we're trying to live into this notion that we create our own identity, we can't escape the fact that our cultural con uh, context is still shaping the way we interpret these desires that, you know, uh, define who we are. 
Uh, I think it's really important to point out because the world we live in today, I mean, sex is sort of the defining thing of people's identity. And it's not always been that way. Uh, and so our identity formation is really complex, more complex than we often think. Yeah, I, I guess the the thing that that illustration brought home to me um, is that there's sort of an idea in, um, especially in the more neo-hippie circles that I sometimes walk in, that um, like following one's intuition is uh, maybe the the way to, to lead one's life. Like you're, you have impulses that come up and you, you follow them and, and sort of they will lead you on the path you're supposed to go. Like there's some seed within you that you, uh, that you just need to obey, um, like surrender to that, surrender to your inner voice. And I guess this, this illustration brought home to me that um, nobody actually does that. Um, like even if I, if I want to be as true to myself as I can or, or, like I'm a particularly stubborn person that has led a life particularly true to myself. I'm weird no matter where I, I'm, I'm exceptionally odd, and um, but I'm still selecting. Uh, I I am definitely selecting. Yeah. And that that process is uh, yeah. I guess I guess it's it's as confusing as it's part of my confusion. Like who am I? Yeah. Um. And in in absence of maybe responsibilities gave me an identity. They used to when I had more of them. Um, now I don't have as many. So it seems to be more of a choice that I make. Like mm -hmm. what kind of person do I want to be? Um, yeah. Well, and there's some good in the fact that we live in a culture where there's your identity isn't completely received. I mean, we can think of a lot of very oppressive situations throughout history and various cultures, even today, where because you're born into a certain situation, that's your identity, you're stuck in that forever. And that can be really bad. I mean, I'm very thankful in many ways that we live in a, in a time when there's more flexibility in terms of our identity creation. But we have to recognize what's lost in that. And I think, you're, you know, a lot of our conversation is describing what's lost in every person growing up feeling like they have to create their identity. And uh, like you can't, I, I would say you came from a family that kind of a uh, an oppressive identity that you were born into. And yeah, my, I'm glad my, you were able to throw my religion and my family definitely had a very strong idea of who I should be. Yeah. In a way that I think was crushing and, and not helpful. And I'm, I'm thankful that you've been able to move out of that. Um, but I would say ultimately the Christian faith says like you, you um, have an identity as someone made by God. There are built in purposes to your life. And there is a, uh, a way that you are called to live before God. And God has made you to have a place among his people. And that, that's all the way you're supposed So that, that gives you boundaries, but they're incredibly freeing boundaries. It's, it's sort of like um, you know, a fish that's living outside of water is not free. It's going to die right? without any limits. I'm going to live outside of water. It's dead. But being inside the water, it, it's got a freedom to live as a fish should live. And that's sort of, you know, obviously an analogy for us. Like we need boundaries. We need limits. We need uh, a sort of, this is kind of what you have to fit into this mold, but God's mold for us isn't oppressive. It's actually very freeing. Um, and so there's even room within that, you know, to, to pursue various callings. But uh, it's, it's just, I think, so harmful to have no boundaries at all. Uh, that's really, that's going to lead to chaos and pain and, you know, just misery, I think. Yeah, I was an, an illustration came to mind. It's 
like having limitations is sort of like like let's say you ha- like your actions are buckets of paint and like limitations are, are like a canvas and like before you have the canvas you're like where should i put all this paint and uh and who knows where it should go but then when you have a, a canvas it's like um maybe more obvious to uh maybe limits the, the infinite realm of choices down to a more manageable set um all right well we're coming up on our last few minutes here and um all right i, I wonder if there's anything else you'd like to say um before we leave well, I'm going to make uh, an evan- evangelistic pitch, man. I think people should look at the resurrection of Jesus. That's that's really kind of the big question. So, uh, I mean, all this stuff about identity and fear of missing out, all of this stuff, um, I think is going to get answered in a certain way if Jesus rose from the dead. And I, th- I think people need to give that a real hard look um, as to whether or not that happened. If it did, that changes everything. Um and so, yeah, that's that would be my encouragement to people. And uh, the lecture series from Tim Keller that we talked about previously, that I'll put a link to, um, talks about um, uh, the Christian case for the resurrection of Christ. So they could look into that if uh, and hear the hear his case. I guess he's like putting forth a pretty good case for it. As, uh, he's a pretty good spokesman for the Christian side. So, yeah, it's a place to start. I, I think if you rule out the possibility of anything transcendent supernatural, then you need to back up a bit. And I think Keller speaks to that in making sense of God or in that lecture ser- series. But if you're, if you're not ruling out the supernatural de facto, then I think, um, then you, the case is pretty straightforward. And I think you got to give it a hard look. And I think he does a good job at presenting that. Well, one thing that we didn't get to that, um, that maybe we can save for a future conversation. That'd be awesome. It, yeah. Is uh is I'd like to talk about Jesus. Yeah. Um I have like you, you know as I I've been uh consuming this material lately, he's kind yeah. of an odd guy and I have a lot of opinions on mm-hmm. him and a lot of questions about him. Um and I think your take on him would be pretty interesting. I'd love it. That'd be awesome, Jacob. Great. Well, thank you very much for uh for being here and recording this podcast with me. Um, well, man, it's an honor. Uh, I, I love uh, our friendship and I love the way you're just so thoughtful and we've had some great conversations. I think this is another one. So thanks for having me.